You're listening to Workplace Perspective, an employment law podcast raising the bar at workplaces everywhere. Workplace Perspective is a regular podcast series for employers and employees focusing on education, training, and the law to help organizations of all sizes develop and maintain successful workplace relationships. The opinions expressed by guests on Workplace Perspective are their own and should not be considered legal advice. And now, here's your host, Teresa McQueen. Thank you, James, and welcome everyone to Workplace Perspective, where we are striving to raise the bar at workplaces everywhere. On today's episode, we will be talking about some mid-year reminders for employers, as well as reviewing some recent key rulings impacting employers in California. It's going to be a great show. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Workplace Perspective has a new website. Visit us at www.workplaceperspective.com. Check out our new look, including our featured guests and archive sections. Share us with your friends and colleagues to help us continue to raise the bar at workplaces everywhere. Welcome back, everyone, to Workplace Perspective. Today's episode is a special episode where I'll be talking a little bit about some mid-year reminders for employers. A few of our deadlines have already passed, but they are important to know about nonetheless. And then I'll be giving a brief overview of some key rulings that have happened in California and some federal uh, information that's been provided that could be really useful to employers. So let's get started. Our first reminder is about the CalSAVERS Retirement Savings Plan or CalSAVERS. Uh, This is truly a reminder um, as some of the information deadlines have already passed, but it's good to know. So originally signed into law January of 2017, CalSAVERS became active June 1st of 2021. CalSAVERS is a program that provides employers who don't have access to employer-provided retirement benefit programs a convenient voluntary retirement savings alternative. So employers with five or more employees who do not currently offer employee retirement savings programs have to take steps to assist employees in accessing CalSAVER benefits. This is where the deadlines come in. So the employer uh, registration deadlines, a couple have already been passed. For an employer that has 100 employees or more, your deadline was September 30th of 2020. So that one's long gone. If you are an employer with more than 50 employees, June 30th of 2021 was your deadline. And we have one more deadline coming up. For those employers of five or more employees, your deadline is next year, June 30th, 2022. If you are an employer is not yet registered in accordance with these deadlines, you better get on it. You need to immediately register to avoid any penalties. Um, I also want to just provide you a quick note that CalSAVERS information packets are something that must be provided by employers to all newly hired employees at the time that they are hired. Employees are required to review and acknowledge receipt of the information packet when they're hired. Um, And newly hired employees, if you have not received CalSAVERS information and your employer's deadline has passed, you need to contact your employer. More information about the CalSAVERS program can be found at www.calsavers.com. Our next update has to do with distracted driving points. 
distracted driving points. Why do we care about that? Well, we care about that because of a lot of our employers and many of our employees drive on company business. And this distracted driving license points uh, law that started January, uh, excuse me, July 1st could impact your ability to drive on company business. So violating existing hands-free cell phone driving laws is currently punishable by a fine. But starting July 1st of 2021, a second violation within 36 months of a prior conviction for the same offense will result in a point being added to the driver's record. This includes violations for talking or texting while driving without using a hands-free device. Again, this is important for all of those of you who drive on company business or employers who have um, driving programs that um, can be impacted and employees' uh, ability to drive can be impacted depending on the number of points they have on their license. All right, our next update has to do with minimum wage increases. So many local minimum wage increases took effect across California on July 1st. Local minimum wage laws require in some counties and cities that an hourly rate be paid that is higher than the state minimum wage. So that can be required even though the business may be physically located in a different city or county. So here's a few tips. So first of all, you want to determine if your business is located within a city or a county's particular jurisdiction, a county or city that has a wage and hour rate that is higher than the state minimum wage. So whether an employer is subject to these pending increases is going to depend, of course, on whether the business is located or it does business within the city or county where the increase is taking effect. So you need to check your city and county's online resources which will help you figure out if your business is located within the city or county's jurisdiction. Now, another reason this is important is because employees who travel or work to uh, or are working remotely in locations where these counties or cities have increased the minimum wage, you want to know about that as an employer. So a lot of local wage ordinances, they take jurisdiction over employees who what they determine, what they define as work within the city or their county limits. So, for example, the city of Los Angeles and Santa Monica both require payment of a higher minimum wage for individuals who work within the city for at least two hours per week, right? So you can see that how, how that might affect an employer whose business may not be in one of those cities, but their employees could be working there for at least two hours per, per week. Employers who have employees who travel into or work within a a local uh, a location that's subject to this increase, you really should be checking to determine if you have employees that fit that city or county's definition of work. Employers are also going to want to make sure that any increases in minimum wage are accurately reflected um, on their employees' wage statements and that they're paying at the proper minimum wage. This could require an internal audit or maybe calling your third-party payroll provider to make sure the effect is going as you think because employers always remain liable for wage statement violations that are made even by third-party representatives. So if you're using somebody else to do your payroll and they make a mistake, you're still going to be responsible. Okay. Um, there's also one last thing with this. Uh, mandated workplace postings also have to be updated as necessary. And most workplace posting notices can be found online free of charge. Now, for information on which cities and counties are impacted by this July increase, 
you should check out a really great online resource at uh, UC Berkeley's Labor Center's Helpful Inventory of City and County Minimum Wage Information. That can be found at www.laborcenter.berkeley.edu. Okay, our last update reminder is for those employers who are subject to the EEOC's EEO1 reporting mandates. So the EEOC, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, has recently announced a new filing deadline for their employer information reports or EEO1 reports. That new deadline is August 23rd, 2021. So this deadline is coming up. Now, due to the impacts of COVID, COVID-19, this particular reporting period is going to include two reporting periods, both the 2019 and the 2020 uh, EEO1 component one form reports. So who's subject to EEO1 reporting? Any employer subject to Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which we commonly refer to as Title VII. Title VII applies to employers with 15 or more employees. But to be subject to EEO reporting, you have to be subject to Title VII, so have 15 or more employees, uh, but also employ 100 or more employees. Okay, so you have to be subject to Title VII, uh, which if you have 15 employees, you are. But to report, you have to have 100 or more employees. So the filing requirement also includes, just in case they're listening, Federal government contractors who have 50 plus employees at a federal contract of 50,000 or more. Okay. There's also, and it's a little complicated. I want to get too far into it, but you could be subject to EEO1 reporting if you have fewer than 100 employees, but you are owned or affiliated uh, with another company uh, or where there's central ownership with a company who is subject to EEO1 reporting. So, you can find out more about eligibility, filing updates, FAQs online at the EEOC's brand new EEO1 uh, reporting website, which is found at www.eeocdata.org slash EEO1. That's www.eeocdata.org slash EEO1. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will continue talking about the EEOC because they've just released a really new important resource. All right. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, more about some EEOC resources. Stay with us. We'll be right back. The average time a resume spends on an HR manager's desk is seven seconds. And most of them are tossed aside. Now imagine if one of those resumes belonged to Yasmin, who was living in a shelter, juggling three jobs. I had to be resilient. That's something that you can't teach. Or if that resume was from someone who worked 12 hour shifts at the recycling company with my dad, who's 72. That taught me a work ethic that I carry with me every day. We rely so much on a resume, yet it could never tell the full story of someone growing up where I did, a lot of things could have gotten in the way of my goals but I learned to push through, and that's what I bring to work every day. So maybe it's time we look beyond the resume and look to grads of life. Discover new ways to develop great talent that are so much more than what's on paper at gradsoflife.org. A public service announcement brought to you by Grads of Life and the Ad Council. 
If you enjoyed today's show, do this. Share us. Like us. Give us a review on your favorite podcast app. It sure means a lot to us, and it ensures that more people tune in and raise the bar at workplaces everywhere. Welcome back, everyone, to our special mid-year legal update episode. We are talking about some reminders for some deadlines that have hit for laws in uh, July and coming up in August. And we're going to give you, uh, as we go through the rest of our show today, some updates on some important case law impacting employers in California. We just finished talking about the EEOC EEO1 reporting. And speaking of the EEOC, on June 15th of 2021, they just released an updated guidance for protections extended to LGBTQ plus workers under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. So Title VII prohibits private employer from discriminating, of course, against any employee because of a protected classification, which includes race, color, national origin, and sex. These latest guidelines, the revision was prompted by last year's U.S. Supreme Court holding in a case entitled Bostock v. Clayton County, Georgia, which was decided June 15th of 2020. So on that anniversary, the EEO celebrated that by updating its guidelines. So the court's ruling in Bostock broadened Title VII's prohibition against discrimination uh, because of an individual's sex. They broadened it by broadening the definition of sex under Title VII to include discrimination because of sexual orientation or transgender status. So Title VII applies, as we just mentioned, to employers with 15 or more employees and, as I said, specifically prohibits discrimination in the terms and conditions of employment at any stage of the employer or employee relationship. That means hiring, work assignments, promotions, and of course, termination. So specifically, employers are not allowed to discriminate against any employee on account of their sex. This includes uh, discrimination based on perceived preferences or requirements that employees conform to any traditional gender dress. The issuance of these guidelines is always an opportunity to review existing policies and procedures to ensure compliance with these and, of course, other mandated protections. All uh, the uh, guidance can be found the EEO's website at eeoc.gov. All right. Our next update is not so much an update for California, but is important nonetheless, as it has to do with President Biden's executive order titled Promoting Competition with Regard to Non-Competition Clauses. So on July 19th, 2021, President Biden signed an executive order titled, wait for it, Promoting Competition in the American Economy. So this executive order encourages the chair of the Federal Trade Commission, the FTC, to, quote, consider working with the rest of the commission to exercise its statutory rulemaking authority to curtail the unfair use of non-competition clauses and other clauses or agreements that may unfairly limit worker mobility, unquote. Phew. Ultimately, the order seeks to push higher wages and better benefits for workers and to restrict, reduce, and even ban certain types of non-compete agreements, those that may unfairly impact worker mobility. So these types of restrictive agreements 
that tend to limit competition in employment. They tend to limit like an individual's ability to freely move between one employment situation and another. And they've been prohibited in California since about 2008, when the California Supreme Court decided the case of Edwards v. Arthur Anderson. This decision, this Edwards decision, really acted as the catalyst for development of what is considered one of the strongest non-competition bans in the country. A lot of states have followed California's lead by passing laws that restrict the use of non-competition agreements. These laws, like President Biden's order, they focus on low-wage earners and workers in specific industries that are found to be more vulnerable than most anti-competition restrictions. So anti-competition restrictions tend to be the ones where employers ask employees to sign agreements that say, you're coming to work with us, you are going to have access to things like our customer list and our pricing modules, and we don't want you leaving and going anywhere. So for a period of time after you leave us, you can't go to work for any of our competitors or work in a particular geographical area. So you can see how that would tend to prevent or prohibit people from freely moving from one job to the next if they know that when they quit, they have to wait a year or more before they can go to work uh, in a different for a different company doing the job that they do to make a living. So it's important to note that this order by itself does not immediately change existing laws in other states concerning non-competition agreements. But what it does is it really signals this watershed change to the overall enforceability of these types of agreements and nonetheless provides a good opportunity for employers outside of California to start reviewing and maybe evaluating the terms of any restrictive agreements or any restrictive language that they have that they're using, either in standalone agreements or maybe handbooks, to use to ensure that these restrictions right now as they're using them are reasonable and not overly broad. Those are two things that when a court is evaluating a non-competition or these restrictive language agreements is going to look at. Um, is it reasonable? Is it six months as opposed to a year or a year and a half or two years? And is it not overly broad? Is it one county or two counties as opposed to an entire state? I really think that making this check and, and asking these questions could really go a long way to sort of increase the likelihood of enforceability down the road um, for employers who are in states that still allow that and before the FTC gets in there and starts making rules. All right. In our last few minutes, um, I want to talk about a couple of big cases with some far-reaching implications. So the first case I want to talk about is a big reversal on the Private Attorneys General Act, or PAGA. On May 21st, 2021, the Ninth Circuit, which includes California, Arizona, several other states, issued a significant ruling in a case called Magadia versus Walmart. So in 2016, Walmart was sued in a PAGA case um, by a former employee, Magadia, who alleged that they had violated California's labor code, wage statement, and meal period laws. Now, the allegations included what was considered to be some hyper-technical violations that related to um, alleged Walmart's alleged failure to provide adequate information on their wage statements um, and to provide compensation for missed meal periods and not providing the dates of pay on the employee's final wage statement. 
So the course reversal of the 102 million, yes, $102 million judgment against Walmart really has important implications for California wage and hour litigation in the PAGA field. So PAGA is a mechanism that authorizes what are termed aggrieved employees. Aggrieved employee is someone who alleges that they've been personally harmed based on one or more California labor code violations. And it allows them, PAGA suits, allows this aggrieved employee to file a lawsuit to recover civil penalties on behalf of themselves and other aggrieved employees, as well as the state of California for labor code violations. Now, key question in Magadilla was whether PAGA plaintiff, who is not directly harmed by the violations that that are alleged in the complaint has standing or the right to pursue those claims based on uh, behalf of other aggrieved employees. Prior California law had always suggested that an aggrieved employee may have standing to pursue PAGA-based claims for not only violations that they themselves have experienced, but also other alleged violations for which they haven't suffered any direct harm or been impacted by directly. So the Ninth Circuit ruling has really brought this issue closer to being settled because they found that Magadia lacked standing to bring his meal period claim because he had suffered no direct harm. This finding is really likely to have far-reaching implications because it's going to serve to limit standing in future PAGA cases where an, a plaintiff, an aggrieved employee, has suffered no direct harm. Now, the other key aspect had to do with the reversal of the court's decision on the hyper-technical wage statement issues. And I don't want to get too technical into it, but Magadia was paid for all hours he worked, including some overtime. But he alleged that Walmart had technically failed to put the rate of pay and the hours worked, including their bonus overtime calculation on the wage statement and his dates of pay were also not listed on his final pay wage statement. So very specific wage statement violations. So going through a bunch of machinations to get there, basically the court found that while the technically the wage statements did not include the correct information, it was hyper-technical and the employee had actually been paid everything and actually had enough information to read the wage statement and understand what his pay period was and how much he had been paid. That's really the point behind the wage statement violations is that the state wants to make sure that an employee can look at a wage statement and have all of the information they need to understand how much they've been paid, how many hours they worked, at what rate, how much vacation they have, how much they, how much they've used, how much success. So all the information in one place. So the important thing is really that this court's failure to uphold this really hyper-technical violation really gives some important guidance that could hopefully limit the scope of these hyper-technical wage statement claims going forward. And overall, this case really is just a stark reminder of the potential for high penalties in PAGA litigation. It also does evidence, I think, the court's discretion to reduce these types of penalties if it finds them to be unjust or arbitrary or oppressive somehow. But right now, I want to be clear, the fact remains that even hyper-technical violations can really cost millions, right? This case was a $102 million case. So employers really should be conducting periodic audits of their wage and hour practices to make sure they are in compliance with wage and hour laws.
Our last case update settles a long-standing debate on the meaning of regular rate of pay versus regular rate of compensation. On July 15th of 2021, the California Supreme Court decided a case called Farrah v. Lowe's Hollywood Hotel. So the question at issue in the Farrah case was the statutory meaning of the wage and hour terms regular rate of compensation and regular rate of pay and whether the legislation actually intended regular rate of compensation to have the same meaning as regular rate of pay, such that that calculation for um, when an employer is calculating premium pay for something like a meal or rest or recovery period, like the calculation for overtime pay, must that account for not only hourly wages, but also other non-discretionary payments, such as bonuses or commissions, for work performed by that employee during that pay period. So in a unanimous decision, the court held that the terms are actually synonymous and encompass all non-discretionary payment, not just hourly wages. All right, what does all that mean? The court's decision that the terms are synonymous means that meal, rest, or recovery period premiums, which is one additional hour of pay, must be paid using the current calculation for determining overtime using the regular rate of pay, which factors in all non-discretionary payments, again, bonuses, commissions during the pay period in which the employee is being paid. So one of the most important things about this decision, the court decision applies retroactively. To ensure compliance with this ruling, employers really should consider the following points. First off, immediately audit any existing payroll records going back for the entire statute of limitations period of three years to determine whether meal and rest breaks or recovery premiums were paid at the employee's regular rate of pay, which means factoring in all non-discretionary payments. Right? That's one. Two, if this audit shows that meal and rest break or recovery premiums have been paid based on the employee's base hourly rate, so just the hourly rate of pay, there's going to have to be a fix-it that takes place. And that fix-it should be immediately updating the existing payroll systems, right? Or contacting uh, your current payroll provider to make sure that they adjust to the correct rate of pay the employee's regular rate of pay, right? Including all their discretionary bonuses and initiate a payroll process going forward then to ensure that workers are complying with all wage and hour laws, including meal and rest or recovery requirements. And this is especially important for those employees who are paid on a piece rate or commission basis, or if they're earning, say, a variable wage rate in a work week or they're eligible for any non-discretionary bonuses and incentives. And above all, with regard to this, because the penalties can be so extreme in wage and hour litigation, you really should consult with legal counsel to really discuss this issue and determine a strategy to reduce the risk of litigation for any retroactive violations that you may have, right? Well, that's all the time we have. That's our show for today. I want to thank you all for joining me. I hope this information is useful. I want to thank for today's show, as always, my radio angels, James and the Nave at Night, and Workplace Perspectives team extraordinaire, our engineer and producer, Paul Roberts. 
Our associate producer, Melissa DeLacy, with music provided by the very talented Stephen Versaloni. Thank you all for joining us on Workplace Perspective. And until next time, keep raising the bar.